Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Alexandra Solomon in for Jerome McDonald. President Trump says Iran is behind last week's attack on two commercial oil takers in the Gulf of Oman. Well, Iran did do it, and you know they did it because you saw the boat. I guess one of the mines didn't explode, and it's probably got essentially Iran written all over it. Over the weekend, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said Iran's culpability was unmistakable. And yesterday, Senator Tom Cotton called for retaliatory action. Unprovoked attacks on commercial shipping warrant a retaliatory military strike against the Islamic Republic of Iran. Iran has denied playing any sort of role and now says it plans to break the uranium stockpile limit set by the nuclear deal unless certain assurances are met. We're going to talk about the growing tensions with Iran with Marteo Farzene. He's Associate Professor of History at Northeastern Illinois University. His next book, which will come out next year, is Iranian Women and Gender in the Iran-Iraq War. Thanks for joining us, Mateo. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. All right. So we had this attack last week on these two oil tankers. The U.S. released this grainy video, which says, you know, Iran was it shows Iran was behind the attacks. We heard President Trump and the secretary of state say we know it was Iran, uh, but not everybody seems to believe it was necessarily Iran. They've called for more evidence. Who do you think was responsible for this attack? And what do we know so far? I'm not sure if I know exactly who is to be blamed for it or who was responsible for the suggested suggested attack. What I can tell you is that the intelligence that they're providing, nobody's seen other than, you know, the people that are saying this intelligence actually exists. Mm -hmm. The video is grainy. The Iranian counter-argument for it is that they were actually helping to uh, get some of the crew off the ship, which happened in the two previous incidents. And another interesting thing is that these are not American ships, actually. Right. These are uh, ships that belong to Japan, one to Norway, and uh, hence the idea that American interests are at stake, as Secretary Pompeo and President Trump are suggesting, and Senator Cotton, that just doesn't bode well with what's going on. Well, I guess that they're making the argument that these are, you know, international waterways, and everybody, de- you know, depends on the uh, those waterways for oil to get through. Uh, let's let's say it it is Iran. Uh, behind the attack, what what would the strategy be if it if it is indeed Iran doing this? It is uh, very unlikely that it would be Iran. But just for mm. the sake of argument, let's mm. say if it is Iran, why would Iranian Revolutionary Guards would do such a thing? Uh, the uh, leader of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khamenei, had said once the um, sanctions were snapped back, as they say, last year by tr- President Trump. And uh, the Americans got out of the nuclear agreement. He did promise that Americans will hear about the mistake, the grave mistake that they've made. So some people are arguing this is exactly tits for tat sort of a response from uh, the Islamic Republic to show that if we need to uh, raise trouble in the international waters, as you say, we can. Now, mind you, with the Japanese ship attack, 
the owner of the uh, shipping line, almost immediately, once the Americans said that the Iranians had attacked the ship and they were in the process of removing the limp mines and they were caught red-handed in action, he actually said, that is not true. This is the owner of the ship, mind you. That is not true simply because they believe it was a drone attack that actually had done the damage to the ship. So would the Revolutionary Guard be that Mm ill-advised to raise the stakes while uh, Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, was actually visiting uh, after 40 years uh, of uh, uh, no uh, specific visits from Japan by a high-ranking official from the government, would they be that ill-advised to actually do that, especially to a Japanese ship? It's very unlikely. The Islamic Republic's Revolutionary Guards uh, might be an evil force Mm -hmm. for many people, Mm -hmm. but we have to also take into consideration that they look at this from a defensive uh, point of view. They are thinking that America has done bad to them before and has continued to do bad to them still. And they are in the position of saying that we're actually protecting ourselves. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Revolutionary Guard has done this, but if they did, this would be the argument. Okay. Well, can you talk a little bit about sort of what's what's been going on inside Iran since this uh, maximum pressure policy has been applied, you know, renewed sanctions? What What is happening inside the country? How are those playing out and who's feeling, you know, the pain of those sanctions? Well, probably every single individual that lives in the territories called the Islamic Republic or in the nation of Iran is feeling the pressures. Mm -hmm. That includes the very wealthy as well as the very poor, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, What has been happening for the past 40 years, uh, the gap between the middle class and the upper class or the, uh, um, the wealthier class has really gotten wide. And this widening of the social class has gotten worse for the past 15 years since the beginning of the nuclear issue with Iran. With the sanctions that went into effect again, unilaterally by the United States, the economy has been dwindling. The dollar has lost almost 1,500% of its value, whereas you could buy a a, a rial, uh, which is the Iranian currency, for 10,000 rials, you could by a dollar in the open market, now it is 150,000. So that gap is quite tremendous. That translates into the price of everyday things. Everyday spending will go up considerably. That includes anything from as basic as onions uh-huh. and tomatoes and potatoes to flour to bread uh, that is made with, and also the um, uh, cars the transportation, the metro cost, uh, a a variety of food items, so on and so forth, and also the tuition prices for people that go to school, which by majority are actually women, uh, they're going to be affected by this. And that would keep uh, the large majority of the Iranian public, which is women right now, that are trying to get educated, that will uh, cast a huge doubt on their future. Mm. So you have this huge swath of the pretty much every every part of the Iranian public that is feeling the the impact how does that translate in terms of pressure on the Iranian government to essentially see see this what what is now a a growing conflict resolved the pressures that are economic in its standing 
will not pressure the Islamic Republic government per se. Mm -hmm. Remember, the listeners need to remember that Iran fought an eight-year war, a lopsided war against Iraq, against United States sweetheart Saddam Hussein from 1980 to 1988. At that time, the economic situation was not any better. This is much, much worse. Mm -hmm. But Iranians have been hardened by that experience. And the public actually knows that the government will not budge. Uh So the large majority of the effect, this hard pressure that Trump, Pompeo and Bolton are talking about, it's really on the public per se and not so much the government. The government will do what the government will do. And that's what it's been doing for 40 years now. Okay, well, so the government will do what the government is going to do. And there's, I'm certain, some pressure to sort of save face publicly, not to look like they necessarily have capitulated to um, American demands. On the other hand, there's been a lot of critique that uh, the Trump strategy has sort of been all coercion, this, you know, heightening of sanctions, basically choking the Iranian um, economy without any kind of... um, diplomacy. How would you assess essentially the risk here for miscalculation on both sides? Well, sure. I mean, um, you you get guns and you get big ships in a very tight space in the Persian Gulf or in the Sea of Oman accidents are bound to happen. We have to remember the Hong Kong uh, Gulf incident back in uh, the 1960s, which led to the official entrance of the United States into the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So that could happen. Another thing uh, that Iran um, needs to kind of think about is to show a way that they are willing to negotiate. But there is a challenge that is there that nobody seems to have an answer for. Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader who actually has a veto power over everything that happens in Iran, said from day one when the Obama administration was engaged with Iranians that we cannot trust the Americans because whatever they sign, they can easily come back and just renege on their promise. And that's proved true. That's And that has proven true. Yeah. Now, for whoever has the guts to go in front of Ayatollah Khamenei again and say, let's give it one more try. They, it seems very unlikely that anybody would have the guts to do that. Now, Dr. Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, who was one of the architects along with John Kerry with the, for the nuclear agreement, has sort of hinted that if the United States does something positive, they could take that to the supreme leader and maybe they could get a wink you know, on the sidelines and not make it so obvious and not make a hoopla, you know, all about it, maybe there will be a venue for conversation. And nobody knows. I don't think anybody knows right now that actually that is not happening right now. We don't know that. Mm -hmm. The uh, kingdom of uh, Oman, which sits in the Gulf of Oman and is an old neighbor of Iran, who has been instrumental in many of the diplomatic impasse before, very effective, had offered something a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and everything has been quiet on that end. So what I'm suspecting is maybe somebody's talking to somebody else, we just don't know about it, but people need to realize that if the president, which uh, with all the evidence that we have out there, which what he's been saying and tweeting, he does not want war with the Iranians, 
Iranians have made it very clear, the Revolutionary Guard has made it very clear, Ayatollah Khamenei has made it very clear that he doesn't want war. So that much we know. The people that are actually pushing the United States into the arms of a conflict that would be beneficial to no one are the the B group, as Dr. Zarif calls it, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Bolton, and uh, Saver Salman, as I call him, uh, the Prince of Saudi Arabia. So what do we watch for in the coming weeks then to sort of get a sense of which direction this is going to go? Well, we just have to wait and see if there is a diplomatic uh, uh, push or breakthrough. One thing you have to remember that everybody that signed the JCPOA or the nuclear agreement, uh, with the exception of the United States, still with Iranians. uh, uh, So they are willing to work with the Iranians because Iran hasn't technically violated the terms of the agreement. Another thing is we just have to wait and see if there's any changes within the administration with the talks of maybe Bolton being ousted. And that could be a huge breakthrough for the Iranians. Marteo Farzene is a professor of history and the principal of the Mossadegh Initiative at Northeastern Illinois University. Coming up in about 10 minutes, um, you'll hear an interview from the Worldview Archive with a journalist who grew up during the revolution. Um, Just real quick, yes or no, how do you think we will uh, head into a war with Iran? I don't think we're going to have a full-fledged war. I think what we'll have is a war engagement or a conflict engagement uh, over international waters, specifically in the Persian Gulf. Matteo Farzane is a professor of history and principal of the Mossadegh Initiative at Northeastern Illinois University. His next book, which will come out next year, is Iranian Women and Gender in the Iran-Iraq War. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, you'll hear an interview I did with a journalist who grew up in Iran during the revolution. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you're listening to Worldview. Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Alexandra Solomon in for Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldview has brought you human stories from at home and abroad. Before Worldview goes off the air this fall, we wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. Nazila Fati was the New York Times correspondent in Iran until she was forced to flee in 2009. I spoke with her on Worldview in 2014. She just published a memoir, The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran. I began by asking her about the revolution she witnessed in the country when she was just nine years old. When the Shah left the country, um, I went out with my mother, like any other day, and with my sister. And then we heard people in the distance. um, uh, For the very first time, 
it wasn't the sound of gunshots or screams or anything. It was the sound of a celebration. And as we got closer, uh, we saw thousands and thousands of people in the middle of the street on the sidewalks. Uh, the traffic had stopped. People had wrapped that afternoon's uh, newspaper over their heads and a, a large title said the Shah left, Shah raft. Um, and it, it felt like such a happy day. Uh, I don't think any of those people who were celebrating on the streets thought how things would take a turn for the worse, a lot worse. Now, in your own family, uh, before the revolution, you were in from a middle class, upper middle class, would you say, upper middle class family uh, living in Tehran. Your father had a job uh, with the one of the ministries running the electrical grid for the country. How did your life, your sort of day-to-day life change from, you know, in those early months right after the revolution took place? What happened? Well, um, the first change for me was that I used to go to an American school. And when Khomeini came to power, he said private schools should be banned, that all kids should go to public schools, and they have to go to the closest public school in their neighborhood. So they shut down my American school, and I could no longer go there. The first year, I had to wear a uniform uh, without a headscarf. But uh, within a year and a half after the victory of the revolution, all girls were required to cover their hair with a headscarf. But one thing that I felt um, very painfully was a swimming pool that we had in the housing complex where I lived. Uh, There were about 400 uh, uh, middle, upper middle class families who lived in this housing complex. And for us kids, that swimming pool had been the center of everything, whether it was in wintertime when it snowed and we uh, took our sleds and skis into the ski and uh, just played there, or in the summertime. Uh, when we swam there. And uh, very quickly, the revolutionaries said that uh, girls over the age of nine couldn't swim uh, in public pools, especially outdoor ones where people could see them. So me and other girls my age, we had to wear a headscarf and a thick coat and on hot supper, summer days and just sit around the pool and watch the boys swim in that pool, which seemed to be like uh, the most desirable thing for us on Earth. They could swim until the age of 15 or 16 also. I mean, there was a ban uh, on their use of the pool as well. But we started feeling the discrimination from a very early age. Mm. So there were all these changes taking place. And one of the things, uh, apart from the banning of things like swimming, there were a whole lot of other rules about things. And you have a story about hiding Bon Jovi tapes in, in tinfoil in your backpack <laughs> um, because someone would actually check your bags each day when you went to school. Who was checking your bags and what, what was behind that idea there? <laughs> so, yes, after the, the revolution, suddenly there were all these women who wore the chador from head to toe the way Khomeini wanted them to wear, not the traditional way that sometimes a lot of women to show their hair or it slipped down over their shoulder. But no, these women were the chador uh, very religiously. There was a, an elastic band behind their head that kept it there on their head. Uh, they came to our schools as morality teachers, and they were supposed to sort of lure us into the um, ideology of the revolution and raise the next ideal revolution. And for some reason, it never worked. We... we These women clearly came from villages. They spoke Persian with an accent, and they talked 
uh, in a way that we felt very disconnected from them. For example, there was one morality teacher who always warned us not to use an Ackman. And by Ackman, she meant a Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is that Ackman in Persian means original packaging. So there was a totally different meaning to the uh-huh. word. And she had no idea what it was. She just banned us from listening uh, to tapes on our Walkmans. Um, yeah. And then we went out of our way to defy these rules. Um, it was as if, like, if we exchanged those tapes at school, we felt we were in charge of our lives. We, we were defining our own identities. And so we came up with all these different ways. Um, we weren't allowed to take tapes to school. We were not supposed to listen to any kind of music. But in addition to that, there were other things. Like we were not supposed to have like a tiny mirror in our bags. Mm-hmm. We were not allowed to take chapsticks. If you had one, you had to justify it for medical reason. So they searched our bags every morning to make sure that we had none of those things. Wow. And so what did, what did it feel like to have th- that sort of kind of level of control exerted over you? You were a young girl then. It was a constant battle, Alexandra. I think we learned from a very young age that it was important to define your identity yourself. And we didn't want to accept that homogenous way of life that the Islamic Republic wanted to impose on not just women, but the entire generation of younger kids who were going to school. And uh, it was clear that they had thought they could raise a loyal uh, generation. But um, it backlashed. It had exactly the opposite uh, uh, effect. I mean, what, what happened was that a lot of these morality teachers who were coming to our schools to turn us into good, devout Muslims and revolutionaries, they started changing. By the time I was in high school, a lot of these uh, morality teachers uh, wore braces hmm. or they wore contact lenses. Uh, they had banned us from beautifying ourselves. They had taken down the mirrors even in the bathrooms. But they were going out of their ways to have a nice smile and to look pretty. And a lot of these women became feminists in early 1990s when I graduated and I entered society. Uh, and they became uh, known as religious feminists, women who who had um, moved up in society because of the revolution. They joined the middle class, and they had felt discrimination against themselves, and they wanted the laws to change and give them more rights. And eventually, these same feminists and the secular feminists seemed to find a common ground and became an important force later on as the country started to move towards reform. Absolutely. I think that was one of the beauties uh, of of what happened. It was not one of the intentions of uh, the revolution, but it happened. Uh, the, the Islamic Republic, Khomeini, helped a lot of uh, more deprived women in lower, uh, among the lower classes who would have historically stayed in uh, villages and just uh, worked um, in a farm or made carpets or raised children. The revolution pulled them from margins of society, brought them into the center. A lot of them were employed by the government. They relied on their steady incomes um, as civil uh, servants, and they moved up in society. And once 
they had joined the middle class. Uh, they wanted exactly the same thing that other people wanted. By early 1990s, a lot of these religious feminists were asking exactly the same thing that secular women had been asking since the beginning of the revolution. They wanted to be treated equally uh, like men. The law uh, took away the custody of children from mothers, and a lot of these uh, young uh, women were quite angry about it. I mean, they didn't know why their husbands had the right to divorce them at any time that he wished or marry another woman, and then he could also take the children away from them. They were angry, and they wanted exactly the same things that secular women had been asking all along, but there had been a gap between them until then, and uh, then it gradually disappeared. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and I'm talking with Nazila Fati. She's the author of The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran, and we're talking about her book and her experience growing up in Iran uh, after the revolution. So I want to go back. You were in high school, and the revolution had taken force, and then uh, Iran got into a war with Iraq. And this was a war that lasted a long time. And it, it actually uh, was an event that seemed to galvanize the revolutionaries and sort of secure the regime. Can you talk a little bit about what that period was like, the, the period during the war, and how that affected you and your family? Well, you know, many political parties uh, with different uh, ideologies supported the revolution, and they helped overthrow the Shah. But uh, when the Shah was gone... Uh, Khomeini hijacked the situation, and it became much easier for him after the war broke out uh, because some of these groups, they were opposed to continuing the war. And uh, he portrayed the war as a holy defense. And uh, in the beginning, uh, Iraqi forces had occupied part of Iran's territory, and he had an easier time uh, galvanizing the entire nation behind an outside enemy to go and fight in the war. And of course, a lot of people, uh, not just from the lower classes, but many people who had strong nationalistic feelings went and fought in the war. And this gave uh, Khomeini time to solidify the foundations of his regime. And then within about 18 months, Iranians managed to push back Iraqis behind international uh, borders. And there were a lot of other political parties that opposed uh, continuing the war, including the leftist groups. But Khomeini wanted to keep on going. I mean, he said that Iranian forces had to go as far as Karbala, which is quite far away from the Iranian border. But he wanted to turn the war into a long-term project so that he could fight and fight and use that excuse uh, to crush um, his his opponents. Um, and I've heard this from many historians who have wondered if the Islamic Republic, the Islamists, would have been able to solidify the foundation of this current Islamic regime without the war. Mm-hmm. And that's a fear that is very valid today, that if Israel attacks Iran, if there is any kind of military operation against Iran, the hardliners would do exactly the same thing in Iran. They will, they will galvanize the entire nation behind the idea that the country is under attack. And once again, they can they can hijack the situation to their own interests. Mm. Um, now, in, in this period of time, uh, one of the themes you kind of come back to a lot in, in the book is about 
this sense of isolation, you know, Iran's place in the world and its isolation from other places and then um, Iranians themselves. And people come up with a lot of ways to sort of circumvent that uh, isolation. And uh, one of the things that becomes this important um, window into the rest of the world are movies. And But you couldn't actually go to the movies or see them. And so you had to kind of come up. There were interesting ways that people got movies. Can you tell us about the movie men and <laughs> how important they were to your yeah, teenage life? Okay. Well, you know, one thing you should know about Iranians is that they, they don't want to be uh, – alienated from the international community. And this was true even before the age of uh, the information technology when uh, the internet and satellite TV came. Uh, I mean, I I had always heard this idea from my parents and, and their friends that Iran was backward and backward to them meant that it wasn't like Europe, that it wasn't like Western countries. Uh, so, and being part of that international community, being uh, aware of what was happening, uh, all went back to that same idea that if if we knew about what's going on outside our borders, then we're not backward. And movies were a window into the outside world. I mean, my parents were big fans of uh, Hollywood movies or even European movies uh, in the 60s and the 70s. But then when Khomeini came to power, he banned movies altogether, except for very few uh, topics, mostly about the war, World War One or two, so that it would it, it could encourage the nation to have the same kind of resistance uh, in the country. So we started relying on these young men uh, who smuggled uh, VHS tapes and Betamax tapes uh, in briefcases, and they came to your door, knocking on your uh, door, um, and you you could just rent those movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the beginning, we used to just watch Indian movies, but gradually they became good at bringing in uh, quite up-to-date uh, movies, um, uh, even uh, uh, movies that were being uh, shown at the theater at exactly the same time, somebody would go into the movie theater with a tripod and a handy cam and just record it. And pirate. So, the yeah, early pirate. version of pirate. Exactly. And and these guys were actually, though, putting themselves at quite a lot of risk. If What would happen if one if they'd got caught? Well, one of our, our video mans was, was caught. He was lashed. Uh, and all his tapes were confiscated. The good thing about the business was that usually customers had most of the tapes. So he had a lot of them were with customers and he retrieved those. But he had to uh, duplicate the ones that he had lost. But it took him like several weeks to recover from from the gashes uh, on his back. Uh, And they, they, they usually ended up paying a big fine, too. But the reward was good. Uh, most of them had very good income and usually resumed their jobs immediately. And technology, um, so this was the early technology, and then um, satellite TV and eventually internet also came to Iran. And that was around the same time when you first um, became interested in journalism. I know you got an email account very early. So wh- what, what led you into journalism? I started as out as a translator, um, and gradually I found out that they uh, referred to me as a fixer. I was somebody who helped uh, visiting journalists. Uh, I introduced them to the stories, translated for them, made appointments for reporters uh, to interview people. Uh, but then when I got my email account, which was quite expensive then, 
I started sending memos to some of these reporters who were not visiting Iran regularly, and uh, th- they were they were interested to write stories, uh, but uh, there was no way for them to get a visa quickly and come to Iran. So when I sent memos, they started relying on those uh, uh, on the stuff that I was sending them, and they could write stories and. Uh, the investment I made uh, in, in, in the internet, in the email accounts that I got, turned out to be very useful, and um, I was hired as a stringer. So, at the and and when you started then working as a journalist, you had some of your own personal experiences with the regime, um, contacts with the intelligence ministry. Uh, the ministry that controlled uh, whether you could have press credentials or not, and um, just uh, some experiences that you know one might have said, "Why did you keep going? Why were you? Why were we willing to sort of keep going as a journalist in conditions that weren't always so easy?" Well, Alexandra, you're a journalist yourself. You know that journalism is like a bug that bites you, and then there's no way out. I fell in love with journalism and. I wanted, and I thought it was important to tell the story. And, uh, you know, I wanted to tell my version of the story. And interestingly, it turned out that the government uh, that came to power after Khomeini's death was also interested in my version of the story because it was presenting the human face of Iran. Uh, The first uh, 10 years after the revolution was during the war when Khomeini had been alive. And the image of Iranians in the West had been very much the image of a woman in a black chador, bearded men shouting death to America. And it appeared that everybody thought that this is Iran, that all Iranians hate America, and they're quite uh, hostile. But this was not the Iran that I had grown up in, and this was not the image that I wanted to present of this country. I wanted to talk about those uh, uh, video men or the bootleggers who brought alcohol for us, uh, the parties that we had inside our homes. It's true that we had to wear the headscarf and pretend that we supported the revolution outside. But inside our homes, we did whatever we wanted to do. And I wanted to tell those stories. Uh, I wanted to show that there was a, a live society that was very dynamic uh, beneath the surface and was vying for change. Uh, and pretty soon that became quite evident in the kind of political protests that erupted in the country. You uh, wrote, uh, you have to have lived in Iran to understand how being harassed daily over the course of decades for purely personal matters, what you wear, eat, drink, can make you less afraid, not more. And you talk about these recurring movements of protests, people coming out on the streets. What is it that you think made people less afraid, given the level of surveillance that was taking place? Anger. Anger and frustration. Um, I don't think it's bravery that brings people out on the streets. It's the anger that finally, at some point, uh, drives people to come out in huge numbers and and stay out there on the streets and confront quite vicious, violent forces. When I hear people say that protesters were brave, I I never think about them as brave people. I always think about them as very angry and frustrated people. And in 2009, if you remember, women were out there in huge numbers. 
And the fact of the matter is that Iranian women have been intimidated, uh, have been uh, repressed for 35 years. And at the same time, they have been empowered because they have moved up in society. They've become educated. And they constantly come out because they're angry by all the discrimination. Mm-hmm. Now, you were covering the Green Movement, the protests of 2009 that people in the West, I think, remember most vividly the images of Neda, the young girl who was killed. So you're covering these protests. And eventually, uh, one day, uh, your husband, I think, was it, was it your husband who said there are how many cars outside of your home? How many, how many people were surve- surveilling you at that point? There were three. I think we counted 16 people. There were three or four cars and two motorcycles with two men on each. What made you decide then? You you confronted difficult moments in the past as a reporter. What what made you decide then that actually you were not safe and you needed to leave the country? Well, you know, it was then that the threat I had received on the phone suddenly felt very real. Uh, a lot of people had been shot by snipers, including Nedara Sultan. A friend and colleague of mine had been arrested about a week earlier. And it was just the day after he had visited me at my home. Uh, I mean, both of them together persuaded me that this is it. I mean, they wouldn't bring 16 men outside our home for no reason. And I had planned for a vacation trip. I had tickets. It, It just seemed like the most reasonable thing to do, to just leave the country. So you did leave the country, and uh, you have been gone now uh, quite some time. Do you think you will ever go back? I'm sure I will go back. That was Nazi Lafati, author of The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran. I spoke to her in 2014. Between now and the fall, when Worldview goes off the air, we'll be bringing you more stories like this from our 25-year run. Coming up on WBEZ 91.5 FM, we'll have our Food Mondays segment, where we meet a pastry chef obsessed with ice cream. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in for Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Alexandra Solomon. Well, it still doesn't feel quite like summer is on its way here in Chicago, so we thought we'd try and help things along. How? Ice cream. According to the International Dairy Foods Association, the average American consumes about 23 pounds of ice cream per year. To talk about what makes the perfect ice cream as part of our Food Monday segment is Monica Ang. She's Worldview's culture contributor. Hey, Monica. Hey, Alex. And also joining us is Dana Cree. She's the author of Hello, My Name is Ice Cream. Her shop, Pretty Cool Ice Cream, opened about a year ago in Logan Square. Welcome to Worldview, Dana. Hi, thank you. 
Okay, so Dana, you were a pastry chef at the Publican Restaurant for many years, serving all kinds of um, complex creations in a very kind of high-end setting, and you tossed that aside for ice cream. Why, why ice cream? Well, what I really love about ice cream, aside from its scientific complexity, is that it is one of life's simplest joys. And I worked in really incredible restaurants with really incredible people in the dining rooms, but they were only accessible to people with a certain amount of money. And it didn't make sense to me to pour everything I was into something I could only share with a specific segment of the population. So ice cream really was something I could share with everybody. And did, did people think you were crazy for it? You know, just like, okay, I'm leaving the fine dining world. I'm going to open up my own place, have a baby. No, I think by the time I left uh, pastry chefing behind to open up the shop, everybody was like, oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure not. I'm sure not your fans. <laughs> oh, no, they everybody wanted the ice cream shop. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah. More accessible Dana. Yeah, and I'd been talking about it for so long. Um, now, the cool thing about your shop is um, it doesn't serve traditional scoops of ice cream. I'm not going to no. get a cone there. No. I am going to get what? Uh, everything is on a stick. So it's ice cream bars and uh, pop. Can't say popsicles because that's a trademarked word. Um, but pops. Um, many of them are water-based. We serve um, plant pops, which are made out of plant-based milks and plant-based ingredients. And then we have a lot of um, dipped and decorated custard bars and ice cream bars um, that are very nostalgic and delicious. Now, we've got a ton of questions for you, but we should probably start digging into <laughs> like, I can't wait. what these Monica's, are. I should like to say Monica's <laughs> already taken a bite, FYI. I know. Well, I don't want them to melt. Um, oh. So tell us about what you brought us today. Okay. Well, I brought a sort of a selection of some of our most notable pops. And I can see that Monica's eating the peanut butter potato chip bar. Holy moly, it's delicious. Which you said is your uh, most popular flavor, right? Yeah, that is the top seller in the shop. So it is um, a custard-based ice cream, which just means ice Mm. cream that has been thickened with eggs. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is blended with peanut butter, and then we dip it in chocolate that has crushed up potato chips in it. Wow, that is fantastic. There's a crunch, there's that nice peanut buttery Mm -hmm. flavor, and then so smooth, that custard. Yeah, it is really good. And I'm normally sort of a more of a traditionalist, but I have to say kind of conservative in my in my flavors. But I have to say I'm you've brought a vegan pop, which um, does appeal. And it is it's it's blue in color. (laughs) Yes. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah. What's it from? Um, So Blue Moon is a Midwestern invention. Hmm. Um, It's a flavor that a lot of kids grew up eating, especially up in Wisconsin. Mm. And I say this as somebody who's not from the Midwest, so I hope I'm not ruffling any feathers by (laughs) making claims for the people who are from the Midwest. But um, it is a fantasy flavor, which means it doesn't exist in reality. What? It's not like a chunk of the Blue Moon? No, and it's not like the beer either. (laughs) We get that a lot. Okay. (laughs) It's really good, though. It's light. It's not too sweet because I don't like it too sweet. It's, it's, It's yummy. Yeah, um, so it's a bright blue ice cream, and the only way we can really describe it is it's like the milk at the bottom of Fruit Loops. <laughs> and it's very citrusy, but mm-hmm. because it's blue, your brain doesn't always connect those two flavors. Um, and we make it with uh, Blue Moon flavoring because we wanted it to taste like... So that's a real thing, Blue Moon flavoring. Oh, yeah. They, okay. um, 
flavoring companies have invented it for okay. everyone. And then we put some natural citrus oils in it as well to elevate the flavor. Um, you know, the first bar we tried, you said, was a custard base. And I, I have a lot of questions about sort of all the differences between, you know, custard, sherbet, gelato, kind of what, tell us, you said custard, custard, what, what defines custard? What, what makes that different from ice cream? Um, well, custard has eggs in it. Okay. So eggs are a natural emulsifier. And it is more of a European-style way to make ice cream is to cook it with eggs over the stovetop. Hmm. And then what about gelato? Uh, Gelato is um, less about the ingredients and more about the uh, way it's eaten. Hmm. So it does have less fat in it, typically. And But what makes gelato truly special is that it is churned very slow, so there's not a lot of air in it. So it's very dense, which makes it feel very rich. But it is also eaten after, right after it's made. So rather than putting it in the freezer and letting it get very hard, like American hard pack ice cream, mm. um, you eat it the same day it's made. And a lot of people, especially in America, and this is blasphemy to Italians, <laughs> will make Italian-flavored gelatos, put them in a pint, and stick it in the freezer, and then call it gelato. Because there are actually no regulations on the term gelato by the governing bodies that regulate ice cream. So you could put anything in a pint and call it gelato. Okay. But um, for to have a true gelato experience, and I know Black Dog Gelato in Chicago is absolutely committed to doing this, they churn, their, churn it every single day. Wow. Okay. So the gelato, it's, it's the churning. Um, yeah, it would be like trying to call something soft serve that's been stuck in your freezer overnight. <laughs> you would never consider it soft serve. It has to be eaten right after it's made because that's how it gets that super stretchy, yeah. luscious quality. It's not as cold, so the flavors are much more present. Oh. Okay. Um, Nat, a listener, actually just called us. He says Blue Moon is his um, favorite flavor. It looks like a ground up. It reminds him of the Smurfs, ground up Smurfs. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure. Well, that's a delicious uh, uh, thought. Image. My kids, whenever we go to Michigan every summer, they're like, Blue Moon ice cream. Yeah. Right. I always associate it with Michigan it's, summers. It's true. Well, the first time I had blue ice cream was actually uh, on Lake Como in Italy, and it was called what? Pufalo. Oh, yes. And that's Smurfs. Smurfs. That is Smurfs so it was in Italian. Smurf ice cream. Oh, right. Yeah. And it, it just, it tasted like frosting. Um, okay, so we've done the gelato, the custard, sherbet. What distinguishes sherbet from ice cream? Um, sherbet is typically made with fruit, and it has to have no less than 2% butterfat and no more than 4% butterfat. So it's a very low-fat ice cream. Hmm. Um and actually, you can't even call it ice cream because in order to call something ice cream, it has to have at least 10% butter fat. And the fat has to be butter. Uh, it can't be something else. Wow. You know okay. your percentages. That's a rule. That's sort of a US government rule. That's where that yep. comes from. Okay. Got it. Department of Weights and Measures. Department of Weight. Oh, Monica's got another bar. So you don't just make pops for humans. You make them for pups, too. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to eat a dog, <laughs> dog popsicle right here and take a picture of myself. Tell me, uh, why did you decide you wanted to make them for pups? Um, well, I have a pup of my own named Eleanor. Oh. And she is... She's been featured in the last two murals on the walls, um, and we just love being able to feed our four-legged friends. You get a lot of them coming in? Um, yeah. Uh, the The saddest part is that they're not allowed in the shop. Oh. Uh, the city um, doesn't allow animals into food service areas, so they have to wait outside 
but we love watching them eat the pops. How about watching meat? I love this. Is it, <laughs> what is it's it? It's not too sweet. It's sort of like peanut buttery. Yeah, and we didn't make it with dog food, so you're safe. <laughs> um, it's just uh, peanut butter, banana, and water. So. I would totally recommend people to get this because it's about my um, <laughs> and it's level smaller. Of it's too. a little smaller. It's, yeah. it's also our keto pop. <laughs> oh, keto, right? Of course, <laughs> the keto diet, right? Yeah. Um, now, so you have these such a, a wide array of of flavors. Where do you get your inspiration for the kind of combinations that you do? Well, um, I would say seasonality, but not necessarily produce seasonality as much as emotional seasonality. So um, one of our most popular pops was the puppy chow pop. It was something we made for the Super Bowl huh. um, with corn checks in the shell and a peanut butter chocolate ice cream. Whew, I thought you were going to say like to make it taste like puppy chow. <laughs> no, yeah. no yeah. we didn't put any kibble in it. So um, like Super Bowl yeah. snacks. Yeah. Yes. So more of like emotional seasonality, the kinds of things that you eat throughout the seasons, um, less based on agriculture and more based on um, cultural and so you've got um, you've got a last last question, Sparkle. Yep. You do some for charity, and this month you've got a Pride Pop. Yes. So um, every month we uh, feature a pop that benefits a different charity. So we support twelve different charities a month or a year. And this year we're doing a Love Is Pretty Cool Pop. It is um, for Pride, and we just wanted to celebrate and support the members Delicious. of our team and our um, clientele who are part of that community. Um, so a uh, portion of the proceeds go to the center on Halstead and a, a marketing firm named CK or has uh, partnered with us and they are helping to boost the visibility of the pop and um, sending it out for five different train stops on the 27th. They'll be handing out pops. It's delicious. That's amazing. Well, Dana Cree is the founder of Pretty Cool Ice Cream. You can find it in Logan Square, where you can check out some of these uh, pops and bars we've been talking about today. She's also the author of Hello, My Name is Ice Cream. Thanks so much for joining us, Dana. My pleasure. Monica Ang is Worldview's culture committed, uh, contributor, and she's hosting tomorrow. Monica, real quick, what is on tomorrow's show? Talking about Green City Market, gardens, and trees. Sounds like a great show. That is tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Yulin Haida with help from Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in for Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5 FM.